Hello everybody and welcome back to Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast, episode 6, Change Talk, an exploration of client language in therapeutic conversations. Our guest today is Terry Myers, but before we speak to Terry, Seb, perhaps you'd like to remind people how they can contact us. Absolutely. Thank you, Glenn. Uh, well, as uh, some of you know already, I'm sure the, the podcast has become available on iTunes, on Stitcher, and, and other places where you might uh, download and listen to podcasts. On Twitter, the, uh, the, it's at Change Talking is the Twitter handle, right? Is that the term that they use? I'm, I'm not yeah. a huge Twitter user myself, but just learning the terminology here. Uh, on Facebook, you can find us at Talking to Change. And if you want to send us an email, uh, the email address is podcast at glenhines.com. Great stuff. So today, as I say, we're joined by Teresa Moyers, who is an associate professor of psychology at the University of New Mexico, where she specializes in the treatment of addictive behaviors. Her research program focuses on teaching counselors to use evidence-based treatments, including motivation interviewing, in the addictions field, as well as identifying active ingredients in motivation interviewing. Dr. Myers has published more than 30 peer-reviewed publications related to motivation interviewing and has presented at conferences and workshops in 42 states and 16 countries. Dr. Myers also trains and competes with her border collie in dog agility. She finds a natural fit in using motivation interviewing to help dog trainers warm up to positive training methods. So you are very welcome, Terry, and it's great to see you. It's lovely to be here. And as with other podcasts, we have a, a number of different time zones. What time is it with you at the minute? Early in the morning. Early in the morning. So I'll just say early. Early. So again, we really appreciate you making yourself available to us. And as I say, there's a couple of different directions we could find ourselves going in today. But I suppose in relation to motivation interviewing, one of the things that sets motivation interviewing apart from other counseling helping approaches has been the exploration of the influence of client language during interventions. And certainly in the early editions of the motivational interviewing literature, this was referred to as self-motivational statements and more mm -hmm. recently has been described as change talk. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, perhaps we could begin with asking, what is change talk and, and, mm -hmm. why, does it, and why does it matter? Well, it's a great question to start out with. Uh, people, there. First of all, there's not a standard definition of change talk. Change talk is a concept. It's a it's a hypothetical construct, not something that we that that's like a cell or or an organism that's that's real in the world. It's something that we make up to to try to talk about and capture an important process that we see in the interaction between two people. So the most important thing I think we should understand about change talk is that it, it isn't real. It's a construct that we should hold lightly. So when you're thinking about change talk and you're imagining it and turning it around in your mind, particularly if you're a therapist and particularly if you're in an interaction with a client, the most important thing you can do is grasp the concept or the construct as opposed to trying to decide whether each thing that the client says actually fits into a particular category. Because those categories that we have about change talk, desire, ability, reason, need, commitment, all those things, those are only markers 
that we put on something that isn't real to help us grasp it more clearly. So change talk, I would say, is the map. It's not the territory. There's a lot more to client language and how people speak for and against changing in their interactions with uh, interviewers than we have on the map of change talk that we have right now. So what do you guys think about that? Huh. Yeah, and it, it definitely leaves us a lot to think about right right off the bat. Um, yeah, and, and I guess, so you, you were kind of speaking to, well, obviously speaking to us, but speaking to the audience a bit, particularly if there are therapists out there. And um, and so th- there's there may be a risk, I suppose, in thinking of change talk as something really specific and well-defined. Uh, and concrete, as, yeah. And concrete, yeah. So, what what do you suppose would be a drawback to if we were to think of it like something so concrete and specific? What what would be the drawback to that? Yeah, the drawback is the same as it is with any any time you reify or make real a hypothetical construct, which is that you miss the big picture because you're paying attention. You miss the territory because you're paying attention to the map. Right. Mm -hmm. And your map says there ought to be a road to go this way. And there you are. And there's no road. And so you keep trying to make the road and look for it instead of figuring out where you really are and and going where you need to go. So mistakes that I've seen therapists make, for example, are they're looking for change talk D.A.R.N., And the person will say something that's very clearly indicates a a, a movement in the direction of change, and the person doesn't respond to it because they don't see it fitting into one of those categories, right? Mm -hmm. And there are all kinds of things that people say that would lead you toward moving towards change that that therapists don't respond to or don't recognize because they're looking for a particular specific concrete category of change talk. Right, mm-hmm. and and you've so, mentioned, you've already mentioned the categories and and both as an acronym and uh, and as a word. It's, so it's what what it sounds like you're saying is that the, one of the ways that motivational interviewing practitioners can recognize the forms of what is categorized as, as change talk would be when somebody uses language that maybe implicates or offers an idea that they have a desire to change, which is a D, and then there's mm-hmm. ability to change the reason to change, the need to change, and the commitment to change. And it sounds like that if we are too wedded to hooking language to those, we miss the opportunity to really connect with the client and work with them in the process of assisting them to move forward. Bang, you hit you hit the nail on the head. I mean, um, you could get all bothered about whether the person has given you D-A-R-N and fail to notice the process that the person's language about changing has increased in you know, strength and frequency over the course of the session. And that actually there are some hints that the person's ready to move on to a different thing and you're not, you're not following because you're stuck on the map, right? Hmm. So uh, the the most important thing I have to say about change talk, I think, is that change talk isn't a concrete, specific thing or instance of what a client says. It's a, it, it can be. You can, you can grab it that way. Hmm. But what it really is is it's a process that the person – that's unfolding in the person's interaction with you. And are you paying attention to that process? And that process is what is the person saying to you 
about their internal movement or their internal experience when they consider changing. And change talk is a marker for that. It's a map for that, but it's not the whole thing. So, Glenn, you look like I've just puzzled the heck out of you. No, do you know what? I'm just I'm staring into middle distance as I, as I reflect that it, the images that are coming up in my head, it's almost like it's one of the ingredients that goes into a cake. It's the cake we've got to be interested in. Yeah. But these, the, the, the raisins are important in a fruitcake, uh, but we're not going to get caught up just looking for raisins. There's other things to be interested in as well. Um, and it's the cake. So in, when, in, when we do our research studies, for example, right. and we actually count instances of, de, of desire, ability, reason, need, commitment, action, taking steps, uh, all of those kinds of different change talk instances we can categorize. And we can get people to, to listen to client speech and put uh, marks and, and count each of those instances of change talk reliably across yeah. coders. So we can do that. But my point is we still miss a lot. And and sometimes the uh, uh, the not the biggest category, but sometimes a really important uh, category is other, right? When we're coding uh, – uh, you have to have a, a mutually exhaustive uh, system for coding. That means everything the client says has to fit somewhere and right. in, in a coding strategy. And that causes you to be really disciplined and pay attention to this. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that not everything people say about changing and in their internal experience can fit into those categories. So you have to have an other category. And what ends up in that other category is really interesting. I'll give you an example of it in just a second. And convinces me that um, we, we don't know all there is to know and haven't captured the, the territory of change talk. We've, on, we've only got a map. Well, so I'm interested in hearing a bit about the research uh, and, and kind of where the attention uh, arose around, uh, around change talk. Um, I, but I, maybe before we jump into that, just think again, thinking about the, the people that may be listening, uh, I would imagine many of whom are, are therapists, but uh, there may be professionals in other settings that um, that may be wondering, OK, so okay, if I were a therapist, I get it. It's, it's about the big picture and, and it's sort of this unfolding process. But if I'm a primary care physician or if I'm a, a dietitian or a, an, a teacher or somebody else, um, it, do you could you see that that the the notion that we're not don't get too caught up in in these discrete pieces that that there would be um, like I guess the notion that change talk is this process do you see it fitting across professions where people might have less time or the the sort of the actual quality of the interaction or the the, the type of interactions are different do you see it cutting across all of these possible environments. Well, yes and no. I I think when you are trying to get somewhere, having a map is way better than having no map at all. And so I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a map that says look for D-A-R-N-C. Hmm. And when you hear that, that's your signal that you should do this, right? So if you see this intersection, then you turn this way or when you see this guidepost then you do then you look for this other thing nothing wrong with that mm. good idea mm. right but you know hold that lightly 
mm-hmm. as lightly as you can. And if you're a person that spends a lot of time doing motivational interviewing, it won't be long until you start to question your map. If you're a person that uses motivational interviewing, maybe not a lot or maybe for not a long time with clients, maybe the map is fine, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's really all you need or maybe it's a good place to start. So it sounds like in some ways one of the ways that we can be measured as practitioners is the outcomes that we're experiencing with the client. Is Has the client moved towards change? Has the client started to act on change? Which is ultimately what I think most helpers are trying to achieve, that if that is happening, is it as a consequence of sticking to the map or using it, as you describe it, holding on to the, the concepts quite lightly because it's the outcome that's more important than how we got there. It's, it's not getting caught up, as you say, caught up on, in the language that the clients are using or the way that we're trying to listen to that language. Is it leading to, ultimately to the client's well-being, the sense of satisfaction? Um, is that there at the end of the conversation? Right. right. Of course, outcomes ought to be our final um, judge about whether we, whether we, how we pay attention to change talk. Right. And I think there, you know, we've got some evidence that paying attention to DARNC is actually helpful. Right. But if a person spends a long time in a in a complex environment. Hmm with a map, pretty soon they'll start to build a cognitive map or a cognitive structure about where they are. The same thing happens with change talk. If you spend a lot of time talking to people about change, eventually, and and, and paying attention to their change talk, eventually your cognitive map becomes very much richer than D-A-R-N-C. And then you begin to ask yourself, well, is there something larger that's going on here or that is more detailed or complex than just D-A-R-N-C? And my only point about this is that if you're there and, and that's where you are in struggling with this concept of change talk, then that's a good thing. Okay. That's a good thing. That, that right. means you're grasping the underlying process there and not just paying attention to the map right you're building your own cognitive map for it okay so one of the things that strikes me is is if if we were to uh, allow ourselves to rise above the map a little more the idea of desire you know we've been talking about that a few times i wonder what does that mean what is it if 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 someone's listening to this and they're they're being introduced to the notion of change talk we we're talking about desirability reason and need so what, why are we looking for desire? Why are we interested? Why are we marking desire? Why are, and how does it sound? Uh, desire, change talk, hmm. would be something like, I want my life to be different. I want to be free of uh, cigarettes. I don't want to have to go to the store in the middle of the night to buy uh Cigarettes. Right. I, 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 I am. I wish my children could uh, play at the playground uh, without having to leave early, so I can buy cigarettes. These, these are. That's all desire language. Okay. So it's. it's and it's, the the reason it's important is because that language is giving way to or expressing. A person's discrepancy or unhappiness with their or their ambivalence with the mm. uh, some behavior or predicament that they find themselves in. 
So it's the client point in the direction of a better a better world or better way of being a happier place. Um, yep, it's one half. It's one half of their dilemma. Right. Okay. That that they're giving voice to. Okay. And and again, using your knowledge of the map, you're describing that that's a signpost that when we hear that, the instinct is to encourage the practitioner to follow that path. Look, help them help the practitioner to explore with the client more about what this desire is about and why it exists. Right. So when when people are ambivalent Mm -hmm. about changing, they have both of that of that kind of language within them. They have both change talk and then what we call sustained talk, which is the other side of the coin. And when a person is ambivalent, both of those sides and and both of uh, those kinds of language will come forward naturally. If you if they start talking about something that they're ambivalent about, you will hear sustained talk and you will hear change talk. Now, of course, you know, things can conspire to make sure that doesn't happen. So if you, if you are in a really coercive environment, you might suppress change talk because, or, or you might suppress sustained talk because you're responding to the environment around you, for example. As like, if you're in jail, uh, you may not give a lot of change talk to your, when you're meeting with your therapist because you're feeling pretty coerced and unhappy. Or on the other hand, you may give a lot of it because you know that's what the person wants to hear, right? right? So there definitely are situations where people do not offer both sides of that uh, equation when they're ambivalent. But usually and sort of naturally human beings, when they start talking about something that they're ambivalent about, they offer both change and sustained talk. And really, when that happens, the interviewer has the opportunity to make one of those sides grow stronger instead of the other. And the way they have that opportunity is what they choose to focus on. So in a situation where you're hearing both change and sustained talk, that change talk is a golden thread. And what you need to do is you need to pick that thread up and pull it and keep going and keep going and keep going rather than picking up the other thread, which is the sustained talk, and pulling on that. Right? So you want to build up one of those sides versus the other. And the client's language is the way that that becomes stronger and builds up in them during an MI session, we think. Right. Wonderful. And it, so we talked a bit about desire and what that might sound like. And I wonder if you could expand on some of the other uh, elements there, the, the the ability, the reasons, the need, because uh, this this is some of the key key points that we try to make when we're teaching MI, and um, I think really helpful for people to sort of expand from the notion that motivation is some unitary uh, construct, right, and or it's just about whether people want to do something. There's other things that influence the choices that we make, right? Oh, sure. So the, when I teach about change talk, the first thing I do is say, is introduce it as a, a broader concept and say, and talk about the things that we've just been talking about, that it's a process, that it occurs naturally when a person's ambivalent, and that there are all different kinds of change talk that you will be hearing in a session. And the most important thing for you to do is tune your ear or start paying attention to that kind of language so that you get really good at hearing it. There's lots of things that go by us when we're, you know, sitting down talking to people because we don't, we haven't tuned our ear and we don't hear that, right? Mm. So just start 
just begin, if you want to begin with change talk, just start tuning your ear to the things that the client is saying that indicate that they're moving towards change or away from change. Think of a giant slide ruler in your head, right? A ruler with one of those slides that goes across it. And, and the positive numbers are, are like the person's speaking towards in favor of change. And in the negative numbers, they're speaking against it. And as you're listening to that person speak, just imagine that slider going back and forth across the ruler. And, and that's how you tune your ear or one of the ways you can tune your ear towards what the person is 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 saying um, that about change about their internal process once you get a feel for that some of the signposts along the way that you can look for have to do with desire uh, which are statements like I want to change ability I can change reasons I have good reasons to change and need I must change. I'm compelled to change. I have to change. Uh, those are all uh, preparatory change talk, right? Like th this is preparatory language. Th these are the the foundational statements that uh, build the platform upon which commitment language rests. And commitment language is I will change. I'm going to change. Um, I'm going to do this. That's uh, the the – the solid gold in MI is when you can you can go for commitment language and you can and you hear it. Now what I will tell you is that lots of times people give commitment language without preparatory language, and lots of times they give preparatory language without commitment language, and they it doesn't seem to matter in the end uh, in in predicting how much change occurs. So the idea is that first will come preparatory language and then will come commitment language and then that will predict change. And um, there have been some studies that found that, but there have been a lot of studies that have also found that one or the other without each – that without each other, they still predict change perfectly well. So one of the take-home lessons that I have about change talk is if you're hearing change talk, it doesn't matter what kind of change talk it is. It doesn't even matter if it fits in the categories. Pay attention to it and try to get some more of it. Right. And, and I guess – that's a potential trap also then if, if if or a potential way to get really focused on the map is is if it if people think that it's this sequence that has to happen in this particular direction where it starts with preparatory language and then you have to get commitment language and those are the two things that need to happen for people to change that that's also kind of missing the big picture i guess what you're yeah. saying is it, it doesn't have to happen in that way absolutely i mean you'll you you might be surprised to to know that I've had more than one person learning MI about change talk that waited um, and and sort of got stuck in a session because they heard desire language and ability language, but they didn't hear any reasons. And so they didn't move forward into any kind of planning because they hadn't heard reasons and need yet. There was lots of desire and ability, but no reasons and need. And so they said, okay, well, I can't, I can't move forward because I got to hear reasons and need. That's an example of what happens when you pay attention to the map and not the territory. Mm -hmm. And again, what's, what strikes me is that it'll be very very helpful, I think, for some people in the audience is, is that for many of us as practitioners, we have learned the, the notion that change is what we can see. It's it's about behavior. That the, the changes, that when we're talking about change, 
change talk, it's almost like we're, we're talking about the person behaving differently. But what's important about the, the desire, the ability, the reason and need, as you describe it as a preparatory change talk, is recognizing that these are the things that are happening internally. These are the thoughts that people are having about the possibility of change and that the practitioner can uh, tap into that and and in relation to their own needs, I suppose, as, as helpers, are they making a difference? It's recognizing that when, he, when we're hearing a client talk about their desire or their ability or their reasons or their needs to change, that this is this is something to to celebrate and to, in fact, then encourage because it's leading to the possibility of the 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 observable behavior change. That if they get caught up in the last bit, which is the observable behavior change, they're going to be disappointed because there's a lot of work to be done before we change our behavior, and the desire, the ability, reason, need is is where that's been built. Yeah. So there's so much. There's so many interesting things in in what you've just said. So. Um, let me just unpack that a little bit. The first thing is, uh, is change a behavior? So now I'm a researcher mm -hmm. in addition to being a therapist, and it's an interesting world to live in, right, to be both a therapist and a researcher. And as a researcher, I like behaviors as an indicator of change because I can count them and right. I can measure them. And so I know uh, – I know uh, – I know something at the end of looking at a behavior and whether it's change that I didn't know before, that I, if I can measure it and see it. If I'm looking at things like internal experiences that I can't really measure, like forgiveness or um, becoming more contemplative or mm. other changes that people might want to make that aren't behaviors, mm. they just occur internally. As a therapist, I know those things can be important and powerful. As a researcher, they cause me a lot of trouble and I don't really like to pay too much attention to them because I want to be able to demonstrate and show that change has happened. And so it's, that's a lot harder if you're talking about something mm. like forgiveness. Probably there's some really clever people who who, who could could do that. I, I actually don't doubt that. Um, but for me, you know, simple as I am, I like to think about things that I can count. And, you know, my favorite thing to count is how many drinks you're drinking and cigarettes you're smoking and people you're having sex with without a condom and things like that. Those right. are the things I like to count. Uh, because that's in the field of addictions, you know, it's sex, drugs and rock and roll. That's what we that's what we pay attention to. Uh, but that doesn't mean that only those things really matter in therapy and in the way people change. So I get that you might have a, a, a change that's not a behavior. I get that. Just for me, motivational interviewing and therapy is about uh, is about behaviors. Part of, that's partly partly because of the way I was trained. So the other thing you've talked about is you know like when you hear this change talk, that's a reflection of an internal experience that the person's having, hmm. and we should be happy to hear that, and we should, and that's right. The larger question is. Yes, of course that – I mean I'm perfectly willing to accept that that change talk that I'm hearing is a, is a reflection of the person's internal experience. It's, it tells me something that's happening inside of that person. The question is can that change talk also contribute to making that experience different? So is change talk just an indicator of something that's happening inside of a person or is it also something that actually creates change? So the analogy that I like to use here is the, is the smoke and the fire. 
when you see smoke, that that is an indicator that there's a fire. Right. That smoke isn't the fire itself. It's the indicator that the that the fire is happening. Right. Now, paying attention to that smoke is a really good idea because that tells you, gee, there's a fire here. Mm. Right. But it could also be that change talk is not just the smoke, but it's also a fire that actually speaking that language uh, out loud in the context of an empathic interpersonal relationship spontaneously actually creates the conditions for greater motivation and commitment to change to happen. So I guess that, that might be a natural segue into some of the research that you've done and some of the, um, I guess, some of the conclusions you may, be, you may have drawn already or may be drawing about those questions. So I guess I, I'd be very interested to hear what, what's some of the early research around change talk that has, has sort of led to the uh, focus on it as a concept? Uh, but then maybe if there's some research that addresses that question about whether change talk is uh, just smoke or perhaps it's smoke and fire. Yeah. So the only research that's been done – well, that's not exactly true. The overwhelming majority of the research that's been done is – smoke research in which we look at change talk and we see does it tell us that there's going to be change later does it tell us that there's a fire and for a long time that's the only research there ever was and the the problem with that is that it doesn't tell us why that happens right so if you look at sessions of people doing motivational interviewing and you count up all their change talk or all their sustained talk or you use sort of a ratio between a proportion of the two that occurs in the session you will be able to predict behavior change so the client language is a pretty good smoke it it will give us a pretty good idea of whether or not the person's going to make the change and i say a pretty good idea you got to realize that's a that's a when you do a study like that, what you're looking for is you're looking for a signal amidst a bunch of variance about about whatever is else is happening in the session with the client, with the therapist. So it's kind of like looking for a lighthouse in the fog. And you know the question is, can you see the lighthouse for the fog? if if the if the lighthouse is there, are you really going to ever be able to see it? And so change talk is a pretty weak lighthouse for allowing us to to see the signal through the fog. Nevertheless, I mean it's a valuable one and it's it tells us yeah, this isn't this isn't trivial. This is something that we could could pay more attention to. This kind of research is done uh, by looking at associations. You know, here's here's this stuff that's already happened and here's the outcome and statistically do we see a relationship between those two things? Do they vary together in a predictable way? So that's the smoke research. Mm. Um, there have been very few studies that have actually looked – have done fire research. And fire research would be the kind of research where you actually experimentally manipulate that change talk in a session. And the, the two studies from my own uh, lab and from my own colleagues are ones in which we 
experimentally tried to manipulate the client's language and then look at the outcomes of that. And um, in those two studies, we were successful in actually being able to um, manipulate client change talk by what the therapist did. So that's the next step, right? Okay, well, if there's an association, can it be influenced by the interviewer? And I think the evidence really is pretty strong that, yes, interviewers do have an impact on, on the change talk and the sustained talk that the client gives, both. Um, so now the next kind of research that needs to be done is to take it one step further and say, if the therapist actually does manipulate the client language in session, and I use the word manipulate advisedly, right? I realize that's a word that a lot of people don't like in the MI world. So you could you could always say influence if you like that word better. But clearly we want therapists to do something about change talk, right? And so um, if, if therapists do that and they influence the proportion of the client's language that's devoted to change talk rather than sustained talk, does that in fact lead to better outcomes? And that's the next step that we have to take with uh, change talk research. And, and, and nobody's done that yet. It's really quite exciting awareness drawn from the difference between the smoke research and the fire research, and, and particularly the, the fact that the practitioner is so influential about the essence mm-hmm. of, of, of the experience that the client has and in many ways the interventions that the practitioner uses influences the client's talk and I, I know I love one of the, the ways that motivation interviewing was described to me I think it was Bill in one of our lectures was the idea that motivation interviewing what we're essentially doing is trying to encourage and support the client to talk themselves into change and the practitioner Absolutely. and the practitioner's job is to listen them into change but what you're describing there is that the listening is, a, a, is an active role that the practitioner uses and that that they ask questions and they reflect in a particular way that continues to guide the, the client to talk about these desires, these abilities, these reasons and these needs. And ultimately to build to the frequency and the strength right. of the, of that language. Okay. Right. And, it, and in some ways, it is a kind of a strange idea that we should be able to help clients talk themselves into change, right? Mm. That's in some ways, that's a very weird idea. Yeah. But, and if you talk to therapists about their like, really, really, is that what I could, can I really do that? But think about the opposite, which is, do you think you could influence somebody to talk themselves out of changing? And the answer to that is almost always yes, right? I believe that if a person comes in, I could arrange the conversation in a way where they end up talking again about all the reasons they don't want to change and they give up and and leave, right? So could you, Glenn, could you, Sebastian, do you think, cause a person by the way you interact with them to be less positive about changing than when they started? Yeah. Certainly. Yeah, when yeah. you when you right? describe, you could imagine it yeah, happening, when you describe right? It like in, that, in it's, some, it's very easy, yeah. Yeah. For, for some of us unfortunates, we can actually remember having interactions with clients that went that way, right? Mm. I can. So the opposite side of the coin we can easily imagine, which is to have an interaction with somebody that is that ends up being negative in a way where they end up speaking against change more than for it. So in some ways, this is just really the opposite side of that coin, which is arranging your conversation with somebody in a way that increases the likelihood that they'll be speaking for change and be thinking for change as opposed to against it. 
Well, and I guess you know, it just has me thinking your your use of the word manipulate or influence, influence. right? Um, which uh, you know could be loaded words, but but ultimately, if if we could invite the audience in, from whatever you know professional capacity they they come to the podcast from. Uh, there are there are likely to be somebody who ha ultimately has conversations with other people about their life, about aspects of their life that aren't working or are problematic for them. And I, I guess I would just want to invite the audience to think about what is it about that conversation that they hope to be helpful to the other person or or how does that conversation ultimately lead to them I guess arriving to that destination that they're hoping to to get to or to get on a new road perhaps and uh, yeah there's some I'm sure there's some people that feel like the key elements are to educate right it, it comes from the assumption that this other person that I'm working with doesn't have information that I have and my my role would be to inform them about uh, about whatever change that they're discussing or maybe for some people it's about helping the person gain some insight uh, maybe may different than information but uh, insight might be another reason that someone will change or become healthier or whatever it might be and and really what we're talking about here is from a, from the standpoint of MI what are the key ingredients in that conversation that we hope that to help people towards change? It's it's not uh, right. I, yeah, I just hope people don't get too caught up in the idea of oh, you know, we're trying to influence people. Well, we hope that the conversations we have are influential, right? And right. I think people people who get um, uncomfortable with the idea of influencing others have haven't really thought that through. Right, haven't really thought through the implications of their professional role. Right, we we they they're not accepting. They're they're getting queasy with the responsibility that they have, which is incontrovertible. It, 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 if you're a therapist or an interviewer, you are accepting the responsibility for having an aspiration for your client. And if you don't have that aspiration, then then you really start to worry me, right? So I'm notoriously impatient with people who are um, not willing to accept the fact that they actually have the job of influencing people and to accept that responsibility and become comfortable with it because when you do that, that's what tells you when you don't want to influence people and when you don't want to have an aspiration for them. And certainly there are situations where even if you're a therapist where you may, may say, I don't want to influence this person. It's not – ethically, I'm not comfortable doing that. But if you never are in a situation where you want to influence a person in one direction or another, I don't know who's paying your salary. I, that just doesn't make any sense to me. So I'm probably the wrong person to ask about that. I mean, I know that there are lots of people in the MI community. Well, not, maybe not lots, but some of people in the MI community who make a very you know, honorable and thoughtful and well – conceptualized uh, argument that you shouldn't try to influence people. Uh, but I don't understand that. As, as, mu as much as I've tried, I just don't get it. So in some ways, like you were inviting us earlier on, not to get caught up too much on the change talk and, and hooking ourselves to that, 
it's again not getting caught up on the language that we're describing the process of helping other people whether it's influencing or manipulating but it's recognizing we've all chosen this career because we want to be helpful and that that the helping means assisting someone essentially in many ways to be different from how they are whether we are setting the agenda or the target for them or they've come to us saying look i'm not happy with the way things are and they're looking to us in some ways to help them to be different and that it sounds like that's what's been described here it's it's that the, they're looking for guidance which in another word in another way could be described as manipulation if if they're looking for guidance they're looking for direction um so again it's it's to it's just to not get caught up too much in the language we're using here today it's recognized yeah i'll i'll buy that but i also i also think it's really a fundamental thing that people struggle with a lot when yeah. they when they're some people when they're trying to use mi and it really speaks to like the way therapy our conceptualizations of therapy have changed over time. It used to be that therapy was a thing that occurred, you know, over a long period of time and you paid for it and you no, there was no such thing as insurance. You know, you went to the therapist and you paid for it yourself and not having uh, the desire or the ability to influence people makes sort of more sense in that context. But since you know, as time has gone along and therapy has become more powerful actually, and we're better at it, What's happened is that in many ways we have societal expectations about mm. what therapists ought to do. Mm. Um, and some of those are so explicit that they're actually legal. Like you as a therapist, you're required to do this if you have a license. And we've become a lot more comfortable with the idea that that therapists and, and motivational interviewers should be accountable to the larger society. Mm. And part of that's because that's often who pays us. It, it used to be that our clients would pay us their fees directly, but now we're most often paid by waitresses. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that we're paid by taxpayer dollars. And where do taxpayer dollars come from? They come, they come from people who work hard. Hmm. And they're giving us the money to do what we do with our clients. And so I have something called the waitress test, which I ask people whenever they talk about how they're uncomfortable with influencing clients. And I say, you know, my money to do what I do as a therapist comes from waitresses that work on their feet eight hours a day, and they pay me through their taxes to sit down with clients. Hmm. And if I said to that waitress, you know, I, I really don't feel comfortable influencing this client towards any particular direction, I can only imagine what they would say. I was a waitress. And if somebody said that to me, I would say, then why am I giving you my money when my feet already hurt so much mm. and I have to work harder. So I think if, you, if you're not comfortable influencing people, you have to ask yourself those kinds of questions about accountability in your work, who you're actually accountable to. And if you're really able to say, no, I'm not accountable to anybody else except this client, and I have no other thoughts about the larger um, impact of my work, then maybe it's okay not to be comfortable with influence. So in some ways, the, the idea of influencing this is, is is working towards the common good is that it's making the world yes, a better some, place and there's some dangers there's some dangers in that too mm. right if you if you don't protect the client's interests in the larger sphere of accountability uh there's definitely some dangers there um but but yes it is it's a larger uh a larger picture of who, to whom you are accountable mm. Mm. 
So anyways, I told you I'm notoriously impatient about this. There will be lots of people that you can have in your podcast who will speak about the other side of that. I often think it would be an interesting debate. Hmm. Uh, and actually, to be honest, Terry, I was secretly hoping you'd bring up the waitress test because I've heard you mention <laughs> it a few times over the years, and it's always a, a, an interesting way of, of thinking about this. So I'm, I'm actually glad you brought it up. Yeah, and it's a larger issue, of course, than am I. You could make this same argument about really any kind of therapy that you do or any other kind of intervention that you do. It just seems to be something that people in MI struggle with a lot. And uh, I think there's a reason for that. So. that's hmm. so, so you know, what's really interesting is just as as was each one of the, the conversations we've had in the podcast, it, the conversation can go in many, many different directions. And, and clearly you're very passionate about that responsibility that the practitioner has to to do their work in verticomas in a way that's useful both for the client but also taking into account who it is they're responsible to as their employers. If, if I draw you back a little bit more towards the, the notion of change talk in, in relation to motivational interviewing, um, I suppose one of the things that's, that comes up in each one of our conversations so far has been about the relationship within the, in motivational interviewing. And I'm curious about how you see that the client language interacts with re, within the relationship to make the MI session as powerful as MI has been described and has, has been found in the evidence. Well, I, I, interestingly enough, my work, my research has been focused a, a lot on change talk, but I think I've done just as much research and actually published just as much on the value of the relationship and the components of the relationship in MI as I have in change talk. Um, and I like that, actually. I like, I like the fact that, you know, I have been interested in and willing to invest time in thinking about both of those components. Um, you know, we, we recently published a study uh, about the value of therapist empathy and the, the predictive value. And it was a smoke study, um, but, a, but a really good one, if I don't mind saying so myself, in which we measured therapist empathy as it was expressed in alcohol treatment sessions. Right. And then we then later saw how much of that, how much prediction we had from that therapist empathy during those sessions for drinking outcomes. And it, it turns out that, you know, how much you're drinking at the end of treatment is predicted by how empathic your therapist is during those treatment sessions. And that's a really powerful, I think, um, idea that, I mean, we've always had the idea that the relationship, this didn't come along in motivational interviewing, as Chris Wagner no doubt told you, you know, this is a very Rogerian, it was really Carl Rogers. And and actually, you could make the argument that, that Freud did as well, talked about the value of the relationship. But to see research that supports the idea that empathy um, in MI sessions actually predicts drinking outcomes, to me, is very powerful. So I think the relationship between empathy and change talk is that you can easily imagine the therapeutic value of empathy and the relationships between the therapist and the client without uh, thinking about change talk. Mm. That's easy to imagine for me. Sure. 
I cannot imagine the value of change talk in the absence of a relationship with the client. So I think the focus on change talk, if it is mechanistic, if it's like, because you could imagine a computer program that would actually listen to what you say and reflect change talk. Hmm. And I know that there are people who are actually working on computer programs that that do this. And I don't think they're ever going to work because I think it's not just the mechanistic uh, features of change talk that help. I think it's the fact that it, that it emerges spontaneously right. in an interaction that you're having with another person and is public. That's what I think is the value of change talk and sustained talk, by the way. Mm. Mm. So, so empathy is in the territory as well. Yeah, I don't know if I can fit MI into that metaphor of the map in the territory because it would be something like the earth or the sky or right. the you know it's, okay. it's like something that that right. holds all of the rest of it. Right. So in right. some ways you're saying it's that by being empathetic the likelihood is that there is change talk happening within that conversation whether you're looking for it or not whereas if you're just focused on the change talk empathy may not be present. Well, yeah. So let's put it this way. If there's a blizzard that and it's so cold and there's wind and the and the the snow is blowing horizontally, you can, the map doesn't do you any good and the territory doesn't do you any good. You can't move. You can't get anywhere. You're just in co- you're just covered by that blizzard. Right. And so, you know, and that's what happens if you try to use change talk or to focus on change talk without paying attention to the in the relationship that you have with the person. Right. And sometimes that's all you can do is pay attention to that relationship. You know, I, I, I have people say to me, well, you know, what happens if my client doesn't give me any change talk and all they're offering is sustained talk? Well, all you can do then is pay attention to the relationship and try to build that person's sense of being understood mm. so that change talk can emerge. It's probably there, mm. right? It's likely that it's there because people are usually ambivalent when they're in a predicament a painful predicament, which is what our behaviors cause us, you know, is painful predicaments. And when human beings are in painful predicaments, they're naturally ambivalent, not always, but naturally. And when people are ambivalent, change talk and sustained talk are both natural. They're usually there. But if there's a blizzard, it doesn't matter how much, how good your map is, it's not going to be helping you much. You just got to hunker down. Well, and this seems to me it would be a a great reminder for people that are learning about, I mean, hopefully people are learning about MI that are listening to the podcast, but uh, there may be people that are in the early stages of career development or in a training program. And it can be very tempting for say a, um, a, a counseling student, let's say, to hear about a particular approach like motivational interviewing and think, Aha, so the key feature to MI is to reflect and selectively reinforce change talk. And and you, you might miss, again, miss the big picture or miss the, the really key uh, elements of, of what seems like, um, like a, a simple concept, but it really is so critical, which is the relationship itself and whether the client is experiencing genuine curiosity, genuine interest, and a, and a real, true, mm-hmm. accurate uh, understanding of, of their, their worldview. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So that if, you, if you focus on the 
language element in MI and you and you do that at the expense of the relationship there's two ways you can go there's two ways you can go wrong there and the first one is that you you attempt to manipulate language without the proper relationship basis for that and that doesn't go well and 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 that ends up feeling mechanistic and cold and unhelpful which it is and the other way you can go wrong with it is that you say well do you mean all I need to do is get the person to say it and then they're going to change? That doesn't – like why couldn't I just give them a chant that they that they do to themselves before they go to bed each night, right? That doesn't make any sense. So without the re- understanding that that happens within a relational context, you it just goes badly in, in any way you think about the language element in MI. Mm-hmm. Right. No, great. I, I had another question too in thinking about – uh, the, the listeners and, and different areas of work they might be in. Uh, granted, uh, the bulk of the MI literature originated from the addiction world. That's certainly what your background is in. Uh, and a lot of the change talk research in particular came from the work in your lab and Bill's lab and, and other people like that. I, I wonder if you have any thoughts or if, there, if you know of any evidence where change talk is as powerful a predictor or is also the smoke that occurs in in work in other areas. So I don't know, eating disorders or diabetes management or, or other places. I, I know I'm asking you about areas that aren't you know specific areas of interest, but I don't know if you know about about that or if that shows up as powerfully as in the addiction sure. world. Sure, um, I would uh, say have a look at the work of Molly McGill at uh, Brown University because Molly's done several meta-analyses in which she takes change talk studies across a variety of different kinds of settings and with different kinds of people and uh, problems and uh, finds some very interesting uh, flashes from the lighthouse through the fog regarding client language. So, yeah. Molly McGill. Excellent. Molly McGill. M-A-G-I-L-L. And, I wonder, and she's a smart cookie, so I, I imagine she'd, she'd be a good person for you guys to follow up with. Yeah, yeah. Good Tell plan. her I sent you. Okay, a referral. Our first yeah. referral. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to tell you, it, it, it's something that's been just talked briefly in other, other sessions as well, is that that as we're learning motivation interviewing, it's, it's recognizing that we ourselves are going through a change that, very often we have to do is change our thinking about what it is we're doing and why it is we're doing it and then we've got to learn open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections and summaries. And it sounds like in some ways there's, there's, it's recognizing that there's almost like a mechanical element to that learning. There's a concreteness to it until it becomes something we get used to and then it becomes much more natural. Mm-hmm. And and I suppose it's it's, I'm thinking about maybe some of the audience members that They've been encouraged to be able to let these things go. But I suppose one of the things is, is to recognize that before we can let them go, we have to know that we're holding them, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It's, it's about, I wonder how then we can support people as they're learning motivation interviewing to enter into this, inverted commas, discomfort of this new skill and new way of thinking long enough for them to get comfortable with it and then what thoughts, how, how, you, how you promote that or support students when you're working with them to go through that transition, to let go of an old way or introduce a new way into what it is they're already doing? Well, 
so I have a couple of things I want to say about the same way you learn MI, the same way that you do any complex skill hmm. or any complex therapy, hmm. which is that you receive feedback from someone who watches your work, who, who knows more than you do about it, watches your work and gives you feedback about it. And then you try again and then you receive feedback and then you try again and then you receive feedback and you try again. And this is the way you get good at tennis and this is the way you get good at cognitive behavioral therapy and this is the way you get good at MI. And we have research that clearly shows that. That's incontrovertible, that people who get feedback about their practice actually do better, uh, gain more skills, keep them longer uh, than people who don't. So the first thing I would say is if you want to get good at MI, you got to get good at it the same way that everybody else does when they do anything else. Um, get a coach. Uh, go ahead. Get yourself a coach. Make sure you have a yeah, coach. Yeah, or a teacher, mm. right? Get mm. get yourself a teacher. Um, and it, and some people are good enough to to teach themselves as they as in any endeavor, right? Mm. Some people just take to it naturally, and they all they have to do is sort of grasp the concepts, and they're off, and they're. Mm. And who, who knows why those people are so good at what they do? Because there really are a group of people who don't need a lot of instruction and they just take to motivational interviewing and they can do it very well with, with relatively little feedback. Those are the fast learners and, uh, and the easy adapters. I don't know. We don't know why. We, we've studied that and we don't know why hmm. yet. And then there's the rest and of us. There are also people who really struggle. And hmm. it, it's it's like it doesn't matter how much coaching and feedback they get. They just never get any better at MI. And we also don't know why that's so. But we do, we do know that that's true. So there are some people who shouldn't try to do MI. They should try to do – they should get better at something else because MI is not their cup of tea. Hmm. Um, and then there's mostly people in the middle. And I put myself in that category when I was learning motivational interviewing, right? They're, they they learn a bit, they struggle. They learn a little more, they struggle. They learn a little more, they struggle. And it's feedback that helps them learn a little more in an efficient way. Cool. Well, I, just keeping an eye on the clock here, um, as, as with all our conversations with our guests uh, we could go on and on and explore other aspects of change talk but I think we've we've covered it quite nicely in lots of different angles and different metaphors certainly we've used so um, <laughs> certainly have. yeah um, fires and lighthouses and maps yeah uh, it's great so uh, one thing that we do like to ask all our guests uh, as we begin to close an episode is, what is something of particular interest lately? What, what's been something that you've been thinking about uh, in relation to MI? Hmm. Either a new project or maybe a, 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 a different right. sort of application of it, I guess. Right. Well, um, so I'll talk just a little bit about my work with um, training people to train animals. So uh, anybody who knows me knows that I'm very interested in training uh, dogs, have been all my life, but the older I get, the more passionate I get about it. And I use uh, sort of what I would call hands-off or positive methods for training dogs, not non-violent, non-coercive methods for training dogs. Uh, and I feel very um, committed to that. And um, 
there there really is a natural overlap between motivational interviewing and training dogs to to get what you want without being coercive right that's kind of the the underlying similarity and i think the work of monty roberts and bill talking about um, training horses is really relevant here right mm-hmm. they the two of them really see an overlap between the way they work across species and they they see similarities in the way they work in mi and what monty calls his join-up method but for me the the most direct application has been working with people who are trying to train their dogs and often people who are trying to train their dogs have this old paradigm that what you do is you correct and you punish the behavior that you don't want in order to get the dog to do what you want and sometimes they've transitioned into using rewards but they still use punishment or Mm. coercion and i And when I'm teaching these classes about people who want to be good dog trainers, I'm trying to get them to shift their paradigm and think about only using non-coercive positive methods to get behaviors that they want. And that's a really revolutionary, difficult thing for people to do. And it has a lot of parallels to what we think about in therapy, which is that, you know, their, their dogs won't respect them, that they have to be the alpha in their relationship, that it takes too much time to do things this way, that it's dangerous to do things this way, you know, like all of these kind of uh, prohibiting ideas. And I think it's really helpful when I'm using MI in situations like that to ask people to think about a different way of, of training their dogs. And it's also um, directly relevant in that most people are ambivalent about using coercion and punishment with to, to, in order to train their dogs. They're really ambivalent about it. They, they're queasy about it at, at some level. Mm. And if you ask them to talk about that, then that ambivalence emerges and some change talk emerges. And then you can build on that change talk and, and in, an, in, an, in a gentle way as opposed to – for example, giving the people information about why this is such a good idea or how it works better or asking them to be insightful about themselves and why they should do this. Um, using MI and allowing them to verbalize the reasons that they think they could do that is so much more powerful. And I just enjoy that so much. It's almost like you're creating a domino that you're that you're being patient, understanding with the the other trainer who will then translate that into their own relationship with their dog. Yeah, I wouldn't say patient. I wouldn't call myself patient, no. <laughs> that wouldn't be the first word I'd use, no. Not really. <laughs> you can do MI without being a terribly patient person, I well, think. Wow. That's that's an interesting idea, and it's, and I I wonder if we had other people around you, would would they describe you as a person patient person? I, I imagine that no 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 they I can tell you they wouldn't no 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 no, no. Uh, that that actually no. that really genuinely does surprise me. I imagine there are times where your humanity shows itself in different ways, but I imagine for you to be a researcher, for you to be uh, such a good MA practitioner that. It sounds like in some ways you're not recognizing that your ability to contain and support and hold someone else's pain and frustration and hurt as they make that transition through their, 
through yeah. is itself I needs would say patience that, on that's, your part. That, I don't think about that as being patient, right? right? I, right. To me, patience means like you sort of naturally not irritated by things. Right. Um, but, um, but actually, maybe it does mean just not acting on that irritation, oh. in, in which case I can be patient. Okay. Yeah. But I, 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 actually, I think it's really great to hear you describe it in this way, because I, I think there's one of the major barriers for some people um, is the notion that it's going to take too much time and right. to sort of wait through this meandering process. Uh, and, you know, you're somebody who you, you cut to the chase. I mean, that, that was certainly one of the first impressions I had of you and you were my trainer in Albuquerque and, and you you kind of you, you had this this uh, the el this element of you of of getting to the point quickly, but but not in a way that was um, offensive or insulting or anything. And and so there is a way to do this work that doesn't require a 50 minute therapy session, or it doesn't yeah. require five years of, of intensive yeah. multi sessions per week kind of work. For sure. But I'll, I'll tell you, when I'm in a class with somebody and I see them, they have a dog, sometimes even a puppy, and they have a choke chain on that dog, and the dog doesn't do what they want, and then they jerk that choke chain as hard as they can so that the, and say no, so that the dog will do what they want. I don't feel patient at that moment. Mm -hmm. I do not feel patient. I feel the same way a therapist feels when somebody in front of them is drinking themselves to death, mm -hmm. which is not, I don't associate that feeling with patience. There's a, a sense of importance and urgency to it. The question is what you do with that. Yeah. And do you yeah. do you allow that to come forward as lecturing and denying and conf I mean confronting and and or do you try to put that into another sort of uh, path? Right. And um, but I, I I don't I just don't think of it as patience because that's just doesn't fit with what I feel at that moment. Yeah. Well, you're, you're just moved strongly by the suffering of the animal or perhaps the suffering of another person who's in, in the throes of, a, of an addiction. Right. And, and it just it, it leads you to to really trust and do what it is that you do in a very focused way. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys, this has been great. It's yeah. been fun talking. Yeah, it's been it's been fantastic to have you, Terry. And again, we really appreciate your time. And for the audience, if if they want to follow up, I wondered if if you'd be happy to allow people to contact you after uh, if they listen to the podcast, if they were looking to speak to you or, or oh, contact certainly. you. I mean, mm -hmm. how would how would they go about? I doing get that? a lot of emails, people asking me what I think about MI. So yeah, no no problem. Um, the way people can reach me is uh, T Moyers. That's T-M-O-Y-E-R-S at UNM, University of New Mexico, UNM.edu. So that's tmoyers at UNM.edu. Fantastic. And again, just to remind people, if they want to get in touch with us uh, on Twitter, it's at changing, talk, talking change or changing talk. What is it? Ch change talking. Change talking. My goodness. Uh -huh. At change That's talking and talking to change on Facebook. And the email address is podcast at glenhines.com. But let's just draw this session to close. And just again, thank you very much, Terry, for coming along. My pleasure. And uh, good to see you again, Seb. And we'll see you again very soon. Thanks, everybody. Yep.
Okay. Goodbye, everybody. Thank Thanks, Terry.